Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with Kirsty Young as part of my In Conversation series on the W Channel. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service. Tonight I'm in conversation with the broadcaster who became one of the most recognisable news anchors in the country, changing the way the news is delivered. She's also just become president of UNICEF and hosts the longest running radio show in the world, Desert Island This. Tonight I'm in conversation with Kirsty Young. Kirsty, thank you for uh, coming on to the show. How many times have you actually been interviewed? Because you, you are an interviewer in everyone's eyes. You're not the interviewee. I've not been interviewed very often. I actually feel my heart is going a bit faster. The idea that I'm sitting here without a plan and you have the plan and I have to somehow be vaguely interesting is filling me with horror. Well, that's be. a good way to start, isn't it? It's lovely, it's, <laughs> it's lovely to be with you. And I said yes, because it was you, but I, you know, the, I, I think also it's important because the, the interview show I do is, is on radio and in a way you should be sort of blank because it's about the person you're interviewing. So yeah. you don't, you know. The, the... But you can say you should be sort of blank, but when you took on Desert Island Dish, you would take it on you know, it, I mean, it's an institution. Yes. It's not a radio show. It's an institution. It's been going, I think, nearly enough 75 years. Nearly. Next January next year will be 75 we've years. Got to, we've got just to make it clear, you haven't presented all of them. <laughs> <laughs> the lighting is very kind in the studio. No, I haven't. I haven't. So there's only been four That's presenters. Right. So you yes. were taking on a massive institution. Yeah. And I was taking over from Sue Lawley, who had done it really, really brilliantly for mm. 18 years and you never really want to take over a job from somebody who's made a good job of it. You know, it's yeah. much better to say, they were rubbish, I'll be better. But I was taking it over from somebody who really had made it her own. Let's just play the theme tune, which has got to be recognisable to okay. everybody. Castaway this week is John Bishop. See, that's what I, want. I just have this automatic thing I that I want to talk over the beginning of that. Yeah. that. Because it's everybody just knows that theme tune. Well, it's like a warm bath, isn't it? It's got yeah. that nice sort of relaxing feeling. And that has been the theme tune since the beginning, since Roy Plumley invented the show. Yeah. yeah. Looking back, you got a little bit of stick right at the beginning of it, didn't you? I did. I, I got loads of stick, obviously, when they said when when the BBC announced I was taking it over. Yeah. Nobody likes change. I mean, I'm I'm a devoted radio listener as much as the next person, and I think one of the nicest things about radio is it's habitual. You turn it on in the same voice as there. Yeah. So whether you're turning on Heart FM or Radio Three or whatever it is, you turn it on. You think, oh, there they are. And so, I was change, and change is not good, and also. You know, the media is a very... I, I was taking over an interviewer's job, and I yeah. guess most people in the media 
might have quite liked that interviewer's job. Yeah, so, you yeah. know, people were writing and thinking, hey, you see that? Well, I didn't think I was anybody. I just thought I was going to go in and sort of keep my head down and try and make but a reasonable But I read that you talk... Because obviously, when you, when you work in the media, you get criticism at different stages anyway. Yeah. But I read that it was the criticism from some parts with Desdar and this that actually bothered you more than anything else. Well, did it? I don't know. I think I'm probably... Are you sensitive to criticism? I am quite sensitive. I mean, everybody can say, oh, well, it comes with a job and blah, 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 but it's not nice, is it? It's not nice it if you think... It depends where you get it from, doesn't it? If it's in yeah. the paper, you go, well, you don't know me. If it's from my wife, I think, well... <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I'm okay. just used to that. But, yeah, you know... yeah, yeah. No, but uh, there is... Did it, did I, it I think... Yeah. Do you know what? I knew it was coming, but it's not very nice when you get hit in the face yeah. with a concrete slab, and that's what it felt like. But I just thought, keep your head down, do the job. For those who aren't familiar with the show, the premises, you're on a desert island, you've got to pick You're stranded, you're, yeah. you're only allowed eight discs to take with you, and we give you... Now see, this... see, that, see, that's how old the show is, eight discs. Discs. Yeah, well, rather some... than eight downloads. I know, a friend of mine said they need to rename it Desert iPod Downloads, <laughs> and I said, that is never going to happen, because it is, it's old fact. You know, you hear the, the music, the whole premise of it, there is a nostalgic premise, but actually the music people choose, I mean, people choose all sorts, yeah. uh, you know, from sort of Schubert to Jay-Z and everything in between. So, so the music keeps it fresh and the guests keep it fresh. And the selection of the guests, where does that come from? The idea always is if you took a sort of cross-sectional slice of world culture at a certain level, because you've got to have done really well to get on it, you know, you're not, you can't be a sort of soap uh. star punting a fitness video, you know, yeah. it's kind of, there's got to be substance there because we've got to talk to each other for 45 minutes. So there's a high bar of achievement and then it's a kind of cultural slice. So it is, you know, it's, it's well, Mary Berry and it's somebody who invented graphene. You know, it's like both of those people have a place. Well, this is the thing, like, for me, as somebody who went on it, I remember, uh, you know, Lisa me 18 saying, you've been asked to go on Desert Island this, and it was like someone saying you can go and have tea with the Queen. You know, whether you're a royalist or not, sure. you'd go to have a look inside the house. Yeah. It was... <laughs> And I went, Desert Island, it's like, it really is a kind of stamp of approval. And did you think, because it is sort of such an, old, an institution, did you then worry about what you were going to choose and that it would be there forever and that people would look back on that and say, oh, we chose that and this is, and he said that? And... I'll be dead honest, I found the, selecting the songs difficult, but what I found most difficult and most scary was the fact that I was going to get interviewed by you. And what, what did you think was going to happen? Well, I had all kinds in my mind. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know. I think it's because, because the show has such gravitas and because you carry that gravitas with you, with your history as a, as a newsreader and so on, as a, as a journalist and as, a, as an intellectual as well. There was an element of me thinking, well, I'm, I'm coming into a show and, as you say, you've, you know, last week interviewed the professor of genetics <laughs> and then, you know, next week you have got Dustin Hoffman coming in. And what okay. I really liked about it is when, when you do it, and obviously if you've never been on it, you never know, no one ever sees it, you are just sat... Yeah. Opposite you, yeah. with a microphone, having a conversation. Yeah, that's it. And and, but I think that's the skill of it, because I've spoke to other people who go on. I remember speaking to David Williams about it, and he said it's like all of a sudden you go on to do a radio interview and you find yourself in a therapy session. <laughs> and people reveal things yes. to you. People have 
definitely said things you wouldn't have said in another interview. Do you know, Dawn French um, had been asked on for many, many years and, and had decided for her own reasons, I'm not sure, that she didn't want to do it and then decided that she would do it. I think it was only three months after her mother had died and she had chosen a piece of music for her mother. And I'm just such a big Dawn French fan. For me, you know, as a kid growing up, she was, you know, she and Jennifer Saunders were the women who made me laugh and I loved them. So it was a really big deal for me to interview her. I'd met her a couple of times before, but I didn't know her. And she came on and inevitably, given that it was three months after her mother had died, you know, it was, there were moments in the interview that were very raw and very exposed. And there were moments when I said to her, do you want to keep going? Are you fine? And it was a raw interview. And, and David's interview actually mm. was pretty, David Williams's interview was pretty raw too. And Dawn French said to me at the end of it, which I really, I just really liked that she said it, which was, it felt like a safe space to talk about difficult things. In. Yeah. And I think that's a really, you know, there are, there are places in the media and brilliant places, and I'll watch them and listen to them, where people get kind of nailed to a cross and, you know, people are right in their grill. And I think if you make it an atmosphere where it is done in a spirit of generosity, Actually, people do really open up to you. You entered telly around about 1920. You didn't go to university. 1920? No. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Before, you were in telly before they invented it. <laughs> no, you're about... I was in my 20s. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, I started as a runner. I started, I started as what as we call a runner. runner. Didn't you were about 19 or Yeah, 20, I was. I, I was 19. I started as a runner, making coffee, labelling up tape, and I, I just about earned enough money to cover my petrol, you know, but I, I just loved the, the world of it. It was fascinating to me. Because it surprised a lot of people. You never went to university. You worked basically from 16 straight I did. Through. Yeah, I did. I, I did. I, I didn't go to university. I was burdened with an incredibly, not just incredibly gorgeous looking, but also incredibly smart big sister. That was my burden. And I loved my big sister and I idolised her and I knew I'd never be as clever as her. And when I went through school, I don't know if you've had this, but if you've got a big brother or a big sister who's really smart, and the model pupil, Laura was the model pupil, mm -hmm. and they'd say, Laura Young's sister? And I'd be like, yeah. Laura, you're Laura Young's sister? So I was a constant <laughs> disappointment. Uh, not to my parents, I have to say, who were very nice to me, but within school I was always in her shadow, so I thought, I'm not going to be that, because I can never be as good as her. So I wrote for the school newspaper, and I was in the school debating society, and if I'd had half a brain at school, I would have worked out that you know, journalism or the media would be good for me, but none of my family were in the media. I didn't know who got those jobs. I didn't yeah. know. That world was so far away from the world that I knew and understood. And in fact, everything I did at school, it would have been a proper linear progression. But I didn't go to university because I was, I was really average in school. I was very average. I got reasonable exam results, but I wasn't a brain box. So what, what was your childhood like then, if you had a, an older sister who, was, who excelled? Uh, my childhood was, I was going to say, totally normal. I think there was an awful lot of laughter. I think yeah. that was a very important part of our life, was making each other laugh, and it still is between my sister and I. But your dad, the person you call your dad, isn't your birth dad, is he? He's not. He's not my, uh, what do we call it? I don't biological know. Father. Biological father. Biological. If this was the Jeremy Kyle show, yeah. the biological <laughs> father. Yeah, although I know who my biological <laughs> father is. That's the difference with yeah. the Jeremy Kyle show. Um, yeah, I, um, I, uh, yes, so my father left, my biological father, it's a cumbersome phrase, when I was three weeks old. And my mother remarried when I was about two and a half. And John, who's my mother's second husband, is the man I call dad. He's yeah. the man who walked me down the aisle when I got married. He is my children's grandfather. He is absolutely, to me, my dad.
Do you have any relationship with your biological None father? None at all. None at all. I, uh, it's really interesting, actually. I've just read a book on genetics and the importance of genetics in personality and upbringing and all of that. Really fascinating book. One of the reasons I found it fascinating is everything I believe to be true, which is your parents are, apart from your eye colour and your hair colour and your height and maybe your predisposition to certain cancers, your parents are the people who were there for you. That's what I think. Yeah. And so my relationship is with John, my dad, and Catherine, my mum, and they're the two people who have brought me up. So everybody's situation is highly individual to them. Yeah. But for me, you know, that has been a great relationship. And to be fair, my biological father never came looking. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's his choice, and it's my choice as an adult to absolutely maintain what is a very significant relationship for was, me with John, my dad. But you sat down as a child and explained that John's not your biological dad. I was, you, I was. And I, you were for, too young to really yeah, notice that he'd gone, obviously. I, my mum said she told me when I was really young, and I didn't remember, and she said she showed me a photograph of her and my biological father when they were married, and... I didn't remember that, and when she, when she talked about it again, she said to me, remember I told you that before, but I think I must have been too young. Yeah. And so when she told me again, I was maybe about eight or nine, or... And of course it piques your interest, and of course that is interesting. And because I felt secure, I never thought about it until I had a child myself. Yeah. And I can remember the moment. Unfortunately, it was lying in the bath, which is a little bit too intimate, but I was lying in the bath. My, my baby Freya was three weeks old. All it made me think was about my mother. I thought, how vulnerable do I feel? Yeah. I've got a three-week-old baby there. This is all new to me. I have a really supportive, loving, fantastic husband, and I still feel like I'm not sure if I'm up to the job. How did she feel? Yeah. I, and, it was the fir and that was me. I went. I was so emotional about it. And I kind of... That was the first time I'd really connected with the reality for my mother. And that's what I thought about. It wasn't about me and this person I didn't know who, you know, didn't know me. It was about what it was like to go through it to be her. Well, one thing that I think sums your mum up was the story about when you had meningitis. Oh, God, you have done your research. <laughs> <laughs> Explain to everyone what actually happened, because I thought this was an incredible story. I'll try and make it really quick. I was, uh, I'd been really busy filming. I was in my mid-twenties, very busy in my career all over the place. You'd getting... just gone to interview Kenneth Branagh, that's I... what was... Yeah, I'd just gone to interview Kenneth Branagh on the set. I was working for Film 96 that used to be uh, presented by Barry Norman mm. and I was the little cub reporter and I had this great gig and we'd been trying to interview him for months. Interviewed Kenneth Branagh. And then I was going up to Aberdeen and I was standing in for somebody on a live... Uh, what was the programme? The Time, The Place, I think. It was a live mm. morning television programme the next day. So there were great jobs for me, and I was very busy. I really wasn't feeling well. Really wasn't feeling well. And I will cut a long story relatively short, but uh, in the middle of the night, I, was, I felt like my brain was going to break out my skull. Vomiting, went to the emergency room in the local hospital in Aberdeen, and the guy gave me a couple of Panadol tablets and said, Pet, just you, you, know, just you go and have a lie down, sort of thing. There had been a medic on the set of the Kenneth Branagh movie because yeah. they've been doing stunts. And he'd said to me, do you know you keep blinking? Have you got a headache? I said, I've got a cracking headache. And he said, um, he said they call that photophobia. And I said, yeah, whatever. And I'm thinking Kenneth Branagh interview. Okay. <laughs> he said, can you promise me that if you still got it by tonight, you'll go to a doctor? And I said, yeah, why? And he said, because it's one of the symptoms of meningitis B. So I said to this doctor in an emergency room at the other end of the country, which I'd flown to to do the next morning's job, it could be meningitis, could it? 
And he said, look, pet, I've been a doctor for 18 years. I think I know meningitis when I see it. So I phoned up my mum, seven in the morning. I said, I can't, I'm not going to be on the telly, mum, because... And by this point, I apparently, I was floating in and out of consciousness, didn't sound like myself, and my mum thought something's badly wrong. She got in a car and drove 300 miles and phoned an ambulance and got me in the ambulance and saved, saved my life. I had meningitis B and I was just about to go into the coma and goodness knows what would have happened after that. So you know what? As I say, she's quite a woman. Oh. She is. She's quite a woman. And it was that thing that any mother will know. You know your kid, don't you? And even if your kid's 26 and living her busy life, you can't, she said there was something in my voice that just was not me. I wasn't there, as she described it. So... Uh, yeah, but yeah. I think that's an incredible story. It, it, it shows, it shows the great bond between the two of you. The fact that she could tell this over the phone. Yeah, I was once about to get on the stage to do. I can't. It was something like this, and my mum would come to watch, and there were loads of people in a studio, and I was just about to go, and she said, "Do you need a wee?" <laughs> <laughs> Thirty-four. If I need, if I need a, but you know, it's always there, isn't it? That's. But, but yeah. the, I bet you, I bet you didn't need one until she said they go. Actually, mum, yeah, I do. Thanks. No, I, yeah. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really, and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want. The home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf alongside other UK TV Play exclusive, including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries, and paranormal TV, all for free. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You've mentioned in this interview the importance of Nick, your husband, yeah. and your relationship with him. And I, I've met Nick, yeah. obviously, a number of times. And what's great about him is you're Scottish and he's Posh English. He is so English. He's, he's hot, not that bad. I'll stop it. <laughs> he's not that bad, but that's the closest I can do. He's he much posh. more attractive than that. <laughs> yeah, he's, but he is posh. Well, he's isn't he? from Surrey. He's from the stockbroker belt. Uh, his father, self-made man, actually, interestingly, yeah. whose father was a journalist. His father worked in the city. Um, so he comes from a completely different background from me. Um, you know, I met Nick when he had a, a restaurant and he was opening his first little hotel. I went to stay with my sister at this beautiful little hotel that he was opening in the middle of nowhere in Somerset. And I went to stay with my sister and he carried our bags. And as you say, he's got this terribly nice English accent. So, and he, he was helping us. And go, I'll just get that. And I thought, I wonder what happened to a guy like that 
who's so well educated and yet he's a porter in a hotel. <laughs> and, he ca and I didn't, he showed us around the room and he was so proud and I sort of felt a bit sorry for him. He was wearing these crap tangerine shorts and his, his shoes had a hole in the bottom. I saw when he went up there and I thought, poor guy. Anyway, he seems that, and luckily, I don't know what stopped me because I am not, in spite of being Scottish, I am not a cheap tipper, but something stopped me tipping him. I don't know what it was, and I probably thought I'll see him again later or whatever. So throughout her marriage, she's never been able to hold it against me that I kind of only gave him a fiver or whatever. <laughs> but that was how I met him. That was the first time that I met him, yeah. And what was the, what was the tipping point? My sister and I were sitting, it was a hotel with, um, it was quite in its day, sort of revolutionary. It had big communal tables to sit at. Loads of places have them now, but you know, 18, 19 years ago, that wasn't such a big thing. And uh, he ended up sitting at the same communal table as us. And I thought, hmm, this is quite a sort of modern way of doing, sort of thinking he was still the porter. And then throughout lunch, <laughs> he was still, he started. He my, sat with the staff. I know. <laughs> uh, and so I was chatting to my sister and it ended up a bit of a group conversation. And he kept sort of getting the jokes I was making or chipping in. And in the beginning, I sort of thought, but. But actually, halfway through the lunch, we all started to talk. And I thought, oh, I like you. You're really nice. And by the end of it, it was a long lunch. And then I realised he was sort of something to do with the place. He was helping to run the place. And then he said, oh, let's, you know, let's, I'll take you on a tour around this little garden. And there's a church. And we took a little tour around with my sister. I can't even believe I'm going to say this because it sounds so sickly. He went away. My sister and I went back to the room we were sharing. And I looked at my sister and I said, well, that's him, isn't it? And she said, what? And I said, that's the guy I thought didn't exist. And my sister, who almost universally disliked every boyfriend I ever had, <laughs> said, yeah, I think that's him. And that was it, I fell in love with him. I fell in love with him that night. It sounds ridiculous. Not to me. Does it not? <laughs> no, and I'll tell you why. N not that I love him, I mean, I like him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I don't want you to think, oh, you've met him as well. I was going, oh, that, that's the one. No, I... Uh, it, I, I feel even self-conscious saying I that. Know, I've gone all red around my neck. But you know what? Something similar happened with me. Did Melanie, it? I met Melanie in a, in a library. Uh, I was at college. She was in a library. She had glasses on, big glasses, the 80s. She had big glasses nice. on. And she did that thing, which is, if there's any woman or even man... Everyone wants to get someone's attention. It's just bring your glasses down and look at someone. Yeah, you? OK. I thought she was being sexy. I didn't know she was short-sighted, couldn't <laughs> see. <laughs> so I thought she was looking at me. And I, I, I remember going over to her and, uh, and I said, so I'll be back in a minute. We'll go for a coffee. So did you, you just went over I on the base? I just went over. I, I was young, I was athletic, and I was wearing a tight tracksuit. And I went over. <laughs> I was. I went over and I said, right, I'll be back in a minute. We'll go for a coffee. And she said, what makes you think I want to have a coffee with you? I said, because you do. <laughs> and I walked off. I didn't go back for 45 minutes. I didn't go back for 45 minutes. I went back. We had a coffee. I arranged to meet her at a cinema at the end of the road. I went back to my house. There was a lad I was living with getting ready and I was rushing out. And he said, where are you going? I said, I just met the girl I'm going to marry. Did you? I said, I'm going, to, I'm going to the pictures to meet her. And I got the bus up, and the bus stopped outside of a pub. And one of me, two of my mates came out. One of them I was with last night came, came out. We go, we go. I said, I'm not going anywhere. We go, we go. Because they'd had a drink. I didn't want to say I've met the girl I'm going to yeah, marry yeah, yeah, yeah. to two half pissed mates. That's the last thing. <laughs> You're going for, you've met a beard, you've met a beard. <laughs> and he came round, and I swear to God, this honest to God, true. I introduced 
Melanie to me, best mates, the same day that I met her. And the lad I was with last night, John, never took his eyes off her chest. He was going... <laughs> 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 and how is he now? Oh, still, I don't think he's ever seen a face. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I know what you mean. Sometimes, for it whatever sounds ridiculous. reason... It sounds you sound like a... You, you, I mean, you sound so self-conscious saying it, but I remember saying it to the lad I was living with. I've met the girl I'm going to marry, and he said, I bet you haven't, and I ain't losing a bet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But there is that little thing, that and bad, so yeah. with, with Nick, it, with, that yeah. happened. Yeah. Was he married then, or...? No, he was, was uh, well, he was looking after it. He had been married. He was coming to the end of his divorce. He very quickly told me they had a three-year-old and a five-year-old. Yeah. And so I met him, and I think four or five days later, I met his kids, but not in a kind of, this is yeah. my girlfriend kind of a way. How did that feel, becoming a stepmother, when you, when you, when you became a stepmother? It's probably been, aside from, I think, being a mother myself, anybody will know this through their parent, you know, it's, it's uh, kind of fascinating. You think it's going to be one way, it's, it's the other way. I would say being a step-parent, I've learned more about myself through being a step-parent than I probably even have being a parent. Well, you just learn that your preconceptions, your challenges of, I'll do it this way, this is what it'll be like. You've got to give children in those circumstances space. You've got to, they've got to find their way of how they want to deal with it and how they want to treat you and... All of that, it's a long... I don't think you should have any idea. You know, I, I probably had always been one of those people about, yep, I'll do it this way. But actually, you can't dictate what it's going to be like to be a step-parent. Yeah. You have to be aware that the primary concern is to make the children feel comfortable, and that might be not being that close to you sometimes. It might, I mean, I'll jo I'm, I, I think I'm really close to my stepkids, and they're grown up now. But, you know, Oliver, my stepson, I sort of joke with him, I say, you know, for seven years, Ollie, you were just a grunting vision in nylon that didn't speak to me. I've got one of them. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So you're but kind of in it for the long haul. Do you know what I mean? You're in I mean. it for the long the, haul. What I've, I've, I've never been able to ask anyone actually who's been a step-parent, but those stages that you go through, I know I joke down saying I've got one of them, but you do have kids who are grumpy and they go through yeah. teenage yeah. years and they yeah. don't like yeah. you as a parent anyway. Yeah. As a step-parent, are you able to judge that it's just them, or do you think it must be because they just ate me because I'm not the mum? Yes, I, I, there were times when I, when I did very much think that. And of course, I was completely wrong. I was wrong about a lot of things. I was wrong about, you know, I used to, when we went on holiday, lovely, wear this and do that. And, no, just back off. Just back off and let them come to you. Just don't force it. Don't think you can control it. Just be there for them when they're ready to be with you and when and often in, in divorces you know kids have been through a lot of stuff oh, yeah. sometimes in a divorce you know so they've got a lot to figure out themselves and I think you can't be their parent I, I, I even hate the word step parent yeah. I think it's the wrong term I think it sets you up for failure actually because if they've got two parents who are around then they have parents yeah. And I guess I probably got it a bit wrong. In, I, I didn't do anything horrible. They were just sort of small failures yeah, on my yeah. own part, really. And when you had your own kids yeah. and they came into the relationship, yes. or your biological children, did yeah. that kind of change the balance? Yeah, I mean, people, yeah, people do say that. I don't know. It was just, I saw this in a drama the other night, actually, uh, that it's not the first time for the partner that, you, for my yeah. husband, it wasn't his first time. Like, it's not your first time. This means more to me than it yeah, means yeah, to you. And all that yeah. rubbish. Do you know what? Just sling it. I mean, really, it doesn't, it doesn't help. You've just got to 
everybody's sort of doing their best. And when you see uh, Ollie and Natasha, my stepkids with my kids, it just, you know what, it's just all one, isn't it? It's just a continuum. Uh, and kids are kids and they all treat each other with such brilliant kind of disrespect and uh, that you know it's a good dysfunctional family. You know, you, nobody's, nobody's treading on eggshells, so that's a good sign. The role you took on at UNICEF was in part oh. motivated by being a parent totally. and having it's, that. UNICEF is it's under the auspices of the UN, but it's the uh, Children's Emergency Fund. It's for children and, by extension, their mothers, because if we're interested in the health of children, we're interested in the health of their mothers. So it's, yeah, so UNICEF UK raises funds for the big UNICEF fund and it goes out to help kids in emergencies and by extension obviously their mothers and also then it does a lot of groundwork full time on trying to help with infant mortality, immunisation, feeding programmes, clean water, all those things that our kids, you know this, you've done all the yeah. comic release stuff, all our kids take for granted and then you got up just back from Ethiopia actually well, and you I, see I, those I, kids. How did it come about? How did this, this role come about? I'm sure people will be aware David Beckham is a global ambassador for UNICEF and he yeah. has the David Beckham 7 fund. And they were launching that last year, UNICEF, and I'd done a wee bits of work for them before. And they said, would you host the press conference with David and interview him? And the world's media was there. You know, you know what it's like the minute he steps out the door. I think we've got a photograph of you. Uh, actually, banks of cameras and lots of press there. And we were talking with the UNICEF people and they said, oh, we'd maybe like you to get involved in other stuff. And I said, well, you know, you got my number and it'd be a privilege. And it, 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 these are people who are working on the front line in areas where most of us don't even, we don't even want to look at it when it comes on the television news. And then out of the blue, they asked me to be the president of UNICEF UK and I sort of couldn't really believe it because I thought that is a very serious thing. It's sort of being their outward face and kind yeah. of talking about what they do and visiting projects and understanding what they do and communicating and helping with big fundraising drives. And you know, I have been guilty of through the years, sometimes turning off the TV because it's too much, it's too yeah. much to see it. I have done that on occasions, or just turning the newspaper and thinking, I can't read that article that goes with that picture of yeah. another child suffering. And that is the wrong thing to do. But I have been as guilty of it maybe as any normal average person is. And I thought, do you know what? Being a mother just makes you realize, and I'm just back from Ethiopia, you're standing in, I'll call them a playground, that is a very loose term. You're looking at these kids, and I'm looking at the kids, and I can see my kids' friends. Oh, there's a cheeky yeah. one. There's the really smart one. There's the shy one. There's the one with snot running down her nose permanently. There's the, you see, and they are, there are, it, I don't want to get all let's hold hands, but there are kids. Do you know what? They were just born somewhere, somewhere mm. else where they had a really, they got the shit end of the stick. And it, it ill behoves us not to really look that one in the eye. And it's small steps often, but somehow, try to make that situation fairer for those kids. I really, mm. I, I really believe that. And so when I asked, when they asked me and I thought, I don't have time, I can't, he's, my husband's traveling all the time. Well, what are those excuses? You know, they're just excuses actually. And if somebody asks you to step up, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to yeah. step up. I think also it's, it's exposure, isn't it? I yeah, think sometimes you, when you're exposed what, yeah. to it, then you know, it's like, you know, I've always said to people, if, if someone fell over in front of you in the street, your instinct would be to pick them up, not step over them. Totally. And you, that's because it's in front of you. So when you go to a place like Ethiopia and you see it, you go, oh, I can't, no, not do it. On every show, we ask people to bring in one photograph. Oh, yeah, yeah. One photograph that's important to them. Yes. This is the picture that you've brought. Can you uh, explain that to us is what's the, happening? That's the world's biggest baby. 
<laughs> Doesn't she look? That's me, and I'm, I think, six months old, and that's my sister Laura with her protective arm around me. And we are, although you might not think it from the underpants in the background, we are actually on holiday. <laughs> and the re that, that sits on my dressing table. It is my very, very favourite photograph because not, it just doesn't just represent Laura and I's lifetime friendship that has been one of the best bits of my life. But also it kind of represents my mother's optimism because there she was, you know, six months in with a brand new baby on her own and her other daughter all on her own and uh, taking them on holiday because mm. life's good. She took them, I think it was to her uncle's house in Edinburgh, which was like 30 miles away, taking us on holiday. And also I looked at that picture and I'm smiling and Laura's kind of shyly smiling. And I just think that's an incredible thing that she got her shizzle together enough yeah. in the middle of the huge difficulties she had at that time to take us on her summer holiday, to have me in my nice white dress. And she said, and we were looking at this just a couple of weeks ago, she came to visit me and I said, Mum, I was really fat. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of twice the size of Lauren at my... And she said, I think I was anxious. I think I was overfeeding you. <laughs> And it kind of broke my heart. You know, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Yeah. This is fine. You'll be fine. And I thought, because I've always thought, why was I such a big fat baby? I think that was it. It was her kind of everything will be fine. And as a mother, that's what you do you, with your kids. You know, you oh look, they've had another meal. And here she was in a set of circumstances that I don't. I think I would have gone under. I think I would have sunk. And she didn't sink. She not only didn't sink. I mean, she swam a, the bloody channel and has brought up a close family and, you know, I couldn't be closer to her and I couldn't love my brother and sister more. And I just, that picture kind of, it's all in there. So that's my favourite picture and I have it on my dressing table. Kirsty, I knew this would be good, but I've got to be honest, I've loved every minute oh, of this and you, I want to carry on. And, uh, I, I didn't even think, I'd have I was thinking, I don't know how we're going to fill the time because I don't have anything <laughs> to say. <laughs> no, thank honestly, you. I think we'll all agree that was oh, a brilliant this podcast was brought to you by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 